Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. It's another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santee. We've got um, a brilliant group gathered today for this conversation. Um, joining me for this episode is Carol Garboden Murray and Liz Nolasco and Tiffany Pearsall. Yay. Can't wait for the video version of this to come out because Tiffany's hair and earrings are fab. (laughs) You'll just have to imagine until Friday, listeners, what this looks like. (laughs) So we're going to we're going to talk today about um, developmentally appropriate practice um, and go probably in several directions with it. Uh, But we're going to start with. a quote, of course, because that's what we do. So this quote comes from an article called, is play a privilege or a right? And what's our responsibility on the role of play for equity in early childhood education, written by Mariana Suto Manning, Sauto Manning, I'm not sure how, um, how that is pronounced, but um, she wrote a great article, however you say it. So um, we're going to start with this, and she's she's quoting the um, NAEYC Code of Ethical Conduct. Um, Above all, we shall not harm children. We shall not participate in practices that are emotionally damaging, physically harmful, disrespectful, degrading, dangerous, exploitative, exploitative, or intimidating to children. This principle has precedence over all others in this code. And then she writes, here I posit, that expecting children to learn passively and denying them the right to play inflicts harm. I urge our profession to claim the responsibility to defend play. Um, so I want to I want to start with you, Carol, because you're the one who first sort of planted the seed for this this episode um, when when I was asking if anyone had topics on their mind and and you said you know just boldly advocating for developmentally appropriate practice was something you thought we should, we should talk about. Yeah. I love that quote because it's, it touches upon so many things I was thinking about. I was thinking about how we have to say no and how we can have these conversations with each other, with parents about our programs, the kind of environment we're building for children and people will nod their heads and agree with us when we talk about play and we talk about joy and we talk about, you know, childhood, but it's sometimes it's not until we say no to something that people really understand what we're building, because I think there are so many um, misconceptions about early childhood and so many deep rooted values that overlap with our histories and the our feelings about child rearing. I mean, so I have had to say no recently in my new job to things like coloring books, to things like screen time, um, to things like um, staying inside when it's raining outside, (laughs) kids to go outside with rain suits. Uh I've had to say no more than I'm used to having to say no. And I have encountered um, in that sort of advocacy, explaining why we're not going to do it this way. We're going to try to be more developmentally appropriate. We're going to try to be more honoring of childhood and respectful of the stages of development of the two or three or four-year-old and their needs, that there is that tendency to um, for people to get defensive, for people to feel like you're shaming them, mm-hmm. for people to feel hurt, to take it personally. And so 
this is this is where what I've been thinking about. How do we really advocate for what children need and what we believe in and what we know about how they learn? Mm-hmm. How do we take a stand and still understand that the way people respond might not always be positive? And how do we do that without creating polarization mm-hmm. and helping people kind of take shifts with us? I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Um, you know, I think I'm struck by the fact that this is such an internal conversation, right? It's between early childhood practitioners and you know, generally when I think of developmentally appropriate practice, I think of defending it to families who do, who are looking for academic rigor, right? And this is, you know, this is rigorous, this is intellectual, mm-hmm. um, but it's so interesting, the varied understandings of early childhood practitioners based on their own lived experience and their their own education and their prior training um, and how it varies so widely mm-hmm. and how I think there are certainly some people who don't have something to land on other than, well, yeah, this is what we've always done. But then there are people who do have firmly held beliefs that no, actually keeping children inside when it rains is keeping them safe, mm-hmm. right? So just navigating those waters of what is best for children and sitting in the position of, oh, you know, culturally there are some people who really like are certain in their bones that taking children outside in the rain will make them sick, <laughs> right? And just trying to navigate some of the research-based best practices with people's own comfort levels, understanding of children and child development and humanity really just gets complicated and muddy very quickly. Yeah. Your turn, Tiff. There's a really, like, we have to remove ourselves from the short-term planning mindset and really start thinking about the, like, hey, in two generations from now, these children will have experienced this and seek it out for their own children. And like, what is the, what are the generations that are parents and grandparents right now bringing to the table? That's very different from the lives of the children that are in front of us. Yeah. Um, And I think navigating that and just like zooming out more to say that like, probably not going to convince every grandma that thinks their kid's going to get sick from the rain. And that's maybe not the hill I'm going to die on. Instead, I'm going to make sure that that kid goes out in the rain, you know? And so like trying to balance that, like, where is the effort of our field best put forth? Um, and having spent way more time in what the like planning and development offices of our government officials lately, like the mindset of government and the mindset of teachers in a classroom and a mindset of directors is let's look at the next two to four years. And really when you think of the turnover rate of preschool teachers, early childhood educators, like we're looking at nine months, like I'm looking nine months ahead. And the four of us in this room, we're looking years and years. Mm -hmm. We're looking generations into the future. And our lawmakers aren't doing that either. They have four years to make a difference. So these are the, the ways they can impact the most change the most quickly. So like, what is the role of, of, organization like NACI or defending the early years to like, how do we scope that out? Yeah. How do we look further than the parents in our class? Yeah. Because I think it's going to like, those are where we can do the biggest bang for our buck right now, mm-hmm. but we need to start looking like 20 years from now. Yeah. That's so I, yeah, I think we maybe um, need to, to define what we're talking about with developmentally appropriate practice before we go um, much further. Um, so, you know, Tiffany, you mentioned NACI and the quote came, you know, partially came from their code of ethical conduct. Um, but I, I feel like, well, here's, so for one thing, I've always worked in early childhood, like that, except for a very brief stint at a bank when I was burned out and thought I was done in early childhood. Um, uh, and another stint where I worked with school age and teenagers more than young children. So, so for a long time, really until the la- I went to work at Purdue about five years ago with the, the speech language preschool 
I thought we were the only field that talked about developmentally appropriate practice. I thought that was a NACI invention. I thought that was the one definition regardless of context. And it's so embarrassing to say that. Um, but then, you know, the speech language pathologist people that I was working with were talking about developmentally appropriate. And I said something about, oh, you know, the three core considerations. And they had no idea what I was talking about. Um, so I think there's a difference between the product that NACI has provided. And it's got good points and bad points. I think I think the book is too much <laughs> to guide any kind of daily practice for a frontline regular person. <laughs> but if we think about it in just, and, and you guys can add your own definitions here, but in my mind, I try to think about it, like I'm trying to think about things like, developmentally typical or developmentally to be expected or um, just so my own mind shifts. But what we're talking about is just understanding the reality of, I won't want to say reality, the understanding child development, understanding the children, the individuals that we've got with us and, and making decisions based on those kinds of factors. And of course, culture, our own culture and other culture, cultural stuff comes into it. So, um, so when I talk about advocating for developmentally appropriate practices, I'm talking about making sure that what we do fits and that our priorities are appropriate, um, for the children in front of us, uh, and not the book. Or, or the stamp of approval kind of kind of dap that comes in um, to a lot of conversations. So I just wanted to say that you guys can say whatever you want to say now about how you define yeah. it. I, I really, I agree with you. And I, I, I think back, I mean, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about like taking the long view, you know, and, and having that bigger feeling of responsibility about how we shape and influence the future. And then it makes me think back to the past. And I think about like when I first started and I'm older than you all, but when I first started um, working in childcare in Florida, um, teachers were allowed to spank children, right? So when I- Still in some Southern states. Yes, they still still are. And I remember one of the first childcare- Wisconsin, I think. I remember the women going like, oh, what do they expect us to do now? You know, we can't hit the kids. And I was like, what? Yeah. You know, so talk about doing no harm. Yeah. Wow. I mean, none of us can argue with that. Like we, we, we're not going to hit kids. Right. But sometimes I feel so passionate about protecting not only childhood, but our profession and the view that the world has of us that I get, I guess, impassioned. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, I, I will say coloring sheets are not developmentally appropriate. So this, this could be a gray area, right? Because it's, there's not a place like there used to be in the DAP guide when it came back out. And when I saw it in the eighties, when I was first working with kids that had a a list of do's and don'ts. Yeah. And that was like, oh, I love this. I love the do's and don'ts. I love someone telling me don't do that. It's very interpretive now. Yeah. So now I would say in my program. I'm not telling you that coloring books are bad. You can do them in your home because teachers would come to me and say things like, well, you know, we've noticed it really relaxes the children or we've noticed, you know, they had reasons, they had rationale. Yeah. And so I would say, okay, okay, great. You know, I'm thinking about myself as a mom. Did I bribe my kids? Did I give them lollipops to get them in the car seat every now and then? Yes, (laughs) I did. I'm not proud of that, but that's not my educational practice. I'm not going to give kids in my school lollipops to get them to do what I want them to do. And I'm not going to give them coloring books because I want to define developmental practice as educational and as showing the rest of society and the families that we understand how a two-year-old learns, how a three-year-old learns, how a four-year-old learns. So then I start to kind of use words like malpractice. (laughs) People will get so like, oh my God, or I'll say, I feel like it's disrespectful to put a worksheet in front of a three-year-old and people will be so offended. They will say, I am the most respectful person. How could you call me disrespectful? You know, but to me, I'm thinking of the mind of the three-year-old and I'm thinking some of that language that's in that, that play article about 
disrespectful practices, intimidating practices, you know, practices that could be harmful. It might be fine for most kids to get a worksheet, you know, but there's going to be three or four or five that feel intimidated and feel that the message they're receiving is that there is an expectation to perform in a way that is not possible. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think a distinction can be made between a teacher who relies solely on worksheets and everybody does the worksheet and they think that that's the way that they're teaching a new skill or concept. And like me as a four-year-old would have been so happy to have had a workbook, you know? Um, So, so for me, like when I'm in the classroom, we don't have them in the art area. We don't use them as our, our learning activities or whatever. But if a child was really into it and I found that out somehow, I might have it available, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. for, for that child piggy- for play. Right. So I think this is where NAC, NAEYC got into a lot of problems with the do's and the don'ts yeah. and also with the best practices talk. Yeah. So, and I think in my mind, I still have a lot of that. Um, and to me, what, what, what wells up inside of me is just this defense of our practice, yeah, defense yeah. of our field and the pushback yeah. of what learning looks like in maybe someone's mind who is suffering from childhood amnesia and is right. only get back to kindergarten or first grade. And I want to really honor what it means to be a child who needs to move, who needs to have that hands-on yeah. active experience. And yeah. Um, and- I know, I know that Liz and Tip are like dying to get in here, but (laughs) I I just on that and maybe worksheets is what we're going to be stuck on now that it's there because it is a sticky point in any social media, early childhood group you go into, but I'm also okay with saying, yeah, okay, here are some worksheets you can take home, (laughs) you know, or here are some coloring sheets Um, or you know, you really like to do that at home. That's cool. But, um, but I don't have any here and, you know, and working around it that way anyway. Okay. Liz, I think I interrupted you and I'm sorry. No, you're fine. Um, I've taken to using the phrase opportunity cost a lot recently, because I think it's true. There is absolutely, it's not harmful for all I'm going to stick to worksheets. I'm going to try to move away from it as I talk, but just because it's right there, <laughs> we'll start there um, yeah. it's not immediately harmful for all children to have worksheets available, right? That's not what we're immediately saying, but what's the opportunity cost of those worksheets being the focus of what the mm-hmm. teacher's bringing out? What are those children missing out on by having this single closed-ended seated quiet activity mm-hmm. rather than having a broader opportunity to create in their own mind what they're what they're going to make or do and having those teachers available to scaffold the experiences as appropriate, bounce their ideas off of each other and really converse and communicate rather than this one way receiving of the questions and right. giving of the answers. With very clear um, right and wrong expectations and, and exactly. very clear success or failure opportunities for the children who are, who are being given that. Well, I want to be a little bit careful about the clear success and failure, right? Because we also have puzzles which have clearly dictated success and failure. So that's not necessarily an immediate. You know what? I don't use a whole lot of puzzles when I'm working with children either. (laughs) I I cannot stand board games or puzzles with young children. My competitive drive is just like (laughs) bad at puzzles. Let me do this puzzle for you. (laughs) But I watched someone yesterday work with a child and have a lovely conversation and teach them how to do the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, this is a totally different experience. Yeah. Racing to get the piece and get it, which is how we puzzle in my house. Yeah. Who's going to get it first? Nah. <laughs> like, and I think that that intent, and I love that phrase of opportunity cost. What, what are you cutting out to do this mm-hmm. potentially appropriate practice? Mm-hmm. I do too. I like that idea of setting your priorities, you know, even if you think about the way you come together with children, you know, setting your priorities um, to, to think about what it means to be for and what it means to come together. And, you know, I always come back to songs and stories, right. And, and joyful games and that sort of uh, the joy of coming together. So yeah, I think, and what would you be missing if you were doing it a different way? Mm-hmm. 
Would you be missing? Would you be singing songs? Would you be having that the opportunities for conversation and play if you were implementing uh, uh, sort of an academic circle time mm-hmm. curriculum? Um, but I love that. Well, come that- on, Carol. There's Monday and there's Tuesday. All right, Tiff. What? What? Uh, so, how about? Um, one of the topics that I think Carol brought up was how do we depolarize this conversation between you are and you aren't? Um, what if we thought about it as like a diet, like a healthy learning diet, right? If yeah. your program is all outdoors, all play all day, your kids are pooped. Oops, I forgot to clean the nap mats and I've got 10 minutes before all the parents get here and our kids really love coloring and I'm going to put out coloring for 10 minutes. Like I feel like that's a different conversation than now we're spending the next two hours coloring Mm -hmm. and thinking about it more as like, this is a healthy diet of learning for these children. There are totally appropriate screen time things. I would not have a screen in my program, but at home, guess what? We play video games because we love them and it's Mm -hmm. fun. Mm -hmm. And it's play. (laughs) Do we play 24 seven? No. But I, I think that maybe expanding this conversation instead of the do's and the don'ts to say like, this needs to be your core diet. These are the things that can build community, right? We're talking about worksheets and coloring pages. I have coloring pages in my program. We had random vegetables out from a Thanksgiving feast and a child had his dinosaur. And I was like, oh, is your dinosaur like broccoli? And he was like, no, <laughs> my dinosaur is a carnivore. He's other. <laughs> I was like, well, okay. And then he was like, draw me a dinosaur. I need to, I need him to eat a dinosaur. Uh-huh. So I talked about what kind of dinosaur and then he didn't want to color it. Who cares? I don't care. We're having a conversation. Mm-hmm. He wanted to cut it out and he had never cut anything out before in his life. So I'm helping him steer and he's doing the thing. And then at the end, he's like, mm, I'm going to eat this long neck and he rips it to shreds. <laughs> but so to me, that's like, that's a healthy learning diet. We're sure. having a conversation. We're playing. It's like beginning, uh, an, <clears throat> an experience together. It's not, you have two choices. You can sit and color with these crayons and the lines and they have to be the right colors mm-hmm. or do this worksheet, you know? Yeah. I had something and it's gone. <laughs> Word diet has brought well, me into the division of responsibility in feeding. So I've gotten real deep into yeah. Ellen Satter recently. Nice. And, <laughs> um, yeah. Excellent. And I, and I, I love that that same framework, right? The adult decides what's available and the child can choose from what's available and it, but it's the adult's responsibility to have that balanced, healthy diet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like not that. the endless iPad. It's the, you know, there are blocks, there are crayons, there are markers, there are papers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just love that analogy. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm trying to kind of pull it back to the idea that you know, Carol, you, you called it malpractice and I'm only hesitating because I'm not as brave as you are, but I believe that that is what some, what happens sometimes in some programs. So what you guys have described is beautiful and developmentally appropriate. And even though, so, so we're not saying workshop worksheets are always good or always bad, or, um, puzzles are always good or always bad. Um, but we are saying that we have a responsibility to understand both three things, I think, how, how children, the age that we're with typically develop and learn, what are the priorities of that age? Not, not what, what's the school standard, but what should be a reasonable developmental priority and how can we then facilitate it support it, plan for it. And I think that's a very different approach than saying, well, we're a readiness program. So um, these four and five-year-olds are going to have to be six and seven someday. So, um, and, and that's, you know, I read an article once that was like, that's developmentally appropriate then, because we think about the cultural elements Mm -hmm. and our culture is readiness and early academics so that's Mm -hmm. that's developmentally appropriate to to make our four and five-year-olds try to be six and seven-year-olds and that is malpractice that there are some things that I think we can say 
are more likely to do harm than other things. Yeah. At risk of getting into the weeds, can I argue with you a little bit, Heather, about yeah. um, <laughs> your <laughs> definition here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm worried about this getting too navel-gazy, and if it is, stop me. But I think there's a great importance on understanding the sequence of development and general developmental trends. Right. But I even worry about saying, yeah, a four-year-old should be able to do this. I think oh, me too. To, okay. So yeah, I, I just yeah. want to... Well, so the, I think that's where the distinction, and maybe I didn't say that the distinction between what's kind of to be expected, but what do I see in front of me here? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I just worry about, I, I think, especially when a teacher is, you know, a career four-year-old teacher and yes. we're getting all these articles <laughs> about the COVID babies, you know, oh and God, yeah. um, I, I just, I think in light of those articles, I think it's very important to see that, understand the sequence of development, understand what skills build on each other. Right and understand that there's not a set timeline for those skills necessarily. Yeah. yeah. And, and when I talk about periods, but yeah, when I talk about what, what should be the developmental priority or whatever, um, whatever I said, <laughs> however I said it, when I say that, um, kind of where I'm going is, um, you know, I'll use, I'll use, uh, emerging literacy as an example. Um, the goal for so many is to get them to learn their letters, start using letter sounds and start reading words and writing their names um, because they're three. You know, I, I had a student last semester who was um, working, doing some, some observations in a classroom of three-year-olds and they had letter writing or name writing time for 20 minutes every day. And so we talked about all the underlying things like the priority at that point should be the core strength and that and and working on, you know, we know that we're developing from the inside of our body towards the ends of our body, you know, so um, or, you know, we should just be playing with language before we expect them to assign a sound to a shape of a, you know, those kinds of things. It, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about prior, you know, what what should be a priority sequence. I like that, though, because I think. When you go back to motor development, I, I find myself, I do that a lot to help people mm -hmm. see how kind of ridiculous it is to expect a three-year-old to write their name. Um, certainly there are, there will be a couple three-year-olds that can write their name beautifully again, mm -hmm. because there isn't a, you know, we can't, we can't box in those broad, broad uh, developmental sequences too tightly. But mm -hmm. I do think of the motor stuff, like we just like, you know, I think of Arnold Gazelle who studied thousands and thousands of kids and, and actually looked at, if I teach this kid to walk, will he walk faster than his twin brother? And then said, no, we don't <laughs> teach kids how to walk. We let them roll around and crawl. And then, so why is it? And when the kid is babbling, and then we know that that babble is going to become a word and we celebrate the babble and we play with the babble and we love the way they mispronounce their grandpa's name or whatever. <laughs> but all of a sudden they're three and they were like, you know, that's not how you write your name. This is, you know, so it's again, mm -hmm. it's like, let's think of the developmental sequence, you know, what, like you said, how are they, I think bringing it back to the body and the motor, yeah. motor piece is so helpful because wouldn't it be crazy to expect a baby to come out speaking in full sentences and wouldn't it in an another an, another way wouldn't it be crazy and maybe close to abuse to expect all the three-year-olds to be able to write all their lowercase letters or mm -hmm. whatever you know, some mm -hmm. teachers are working on these things um so I think about the developmental sequence and then I also think about that cultural piece that you said because we have to ask ourselves what the culture is we're operating in so if the culture we're operating in is the readiness culture and the competitiveness and the let's get ahead and earlier is better Then that I would argue is a culture of oppression. Mm -hmm. And that I would argue is a culture of disrespecting childhood mm -hmm. and ableism and fortification <laughs> of adults. Yeah. So I would, I would question the cultural context and that can even play sometimes with cultures when they say, well, this is the way we, and I, I've come from a family who spanked, right? Mm -hmm. So this is the way that we do it in our culture, you know, spanking or speaking harshly to children, um, that that could be 
some, I do think there are some, some, some yeses and nos Mm -hmm. in terms of what we can name as harmful. Mm -hmm. And I don't think hitting kids is acceptable. Um, So I just think we have to be careful about the culture we're operating in and ask ourselves as child advocates, how we speak boldly about the needs of children and defend their rights. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah. that's people get upset. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, uh, well, uh, Tiffany, were you writing things? Are you waiting to say something? Oh, no, I'm writing <laughs> smart things that my friends on the Zoom say. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I know that I, uh, uh, that I, I talk too much when when you two are on, cause you're not, I always talk too much. <laughs> you guys get me so excited. I, I, I like, I don't get a, me like, started. It takes me, I'm like a half step behind processing at the end. I'm like, Oh wait, I have 30 more things to say. So my <laughs> I think, you know, I think, um, I, I mean, I think this was definitely, there was some polarization or some division or whatever you want to say around the idea of developmentally appropriate practice because I've been in the field long enough to have been in the field before social media or the internet was a thing but it's really difficult in social media you know uh exchanges or where it's just someone posts something and then there's all kinds of comments or that's inappropriate or this is you know the fights in the comments and and what what I'm hearing from everyone here is that um there definitely are some things that are yeses or nos, but we have to have more information before we decide whether it's a, a yes or a no, if that makes sense. Then sometimes yeah. we let we let ourselves give to each other. Yeah. And the imagery, we have knee-jerk reactions. Like yeah. if we see a bunch of polar bears on the bulletin board and said, oh, they don't understand process yeah. art, but we but we, sh- we can't really judge. Yeah. We can't really peer into another classroom and judge. Um, so I think we do have to be careful about our those snap judgments. Yeah. Do you, are you judging me for my trees? No. Oh, <laughs> no. Like- <laughs> <laughs> we found them in a the bottom of a donated box and had to hang them up. I and love then we it. Them down and it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so can we talk about shaming? Cause that, that word has been used a couple of times in this conversation too. Um, because my, my experience, I guess, or where my mind goes is that if you dare to suggest that someone's idea or activity or approach is, is not in line with <laughs> childhood or, um, what we know developmentally or even what brain science, you know, tells us now about the sensory importance and the movement importance um, involved in learning that people feel like that, like you're intentionally shaming them. Can we talk about that? Clearly I can't because I'm struggling now. I've thought about it a lot. I mean, it's come up for me in my work around language when I've asked educators to think about the language they're using, mm-hmm. it's so close to them and they feel they feel really intimidated when I come into the room now because is Carol listening to everything I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And you know, this is the way I've always called every child sweetie and love and hi <laughs> and, yeah. and 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 I try to help people reflect upon the language they're using. And some teachers are maybe quizzing kids all the time. Mm-hmm. Here comes Carol. Let's tell Carol about what we saw when we yeah. were walking. Quiz, quiz, quiz. And I'm like, you know, when I come in the room, I don't want you to quiz. I want I want to have a conversation with you. Let's think about what it means that you want kids to fill in the blank. You know, like how you do love children. You want to show their strengths. But can we think of a new way to do that? Or we're calling everyone friends or we're saying phrases like, you know, put your tears in your pockets. You know, if you've been in childcare as long as I have, we've heard all these phrases. I had not heard, put your tears in your pocket. It's time to put your tears in your pocket. Wow. Okay. It's like for me. (laughs) (laughs) Tiffany's got it. (laughs) Those phrases really, um, I guess the reason I bring that example up is because it just reminds me of how interpretive and personal and intimate our work is. And then why it's easy to go to the shame place, you know? Yeah. When we're asked to 
shift a practice or think about things differently. Yeah. Um, because it is personal. We can't say don't take it personally. It is personal. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it is so close to yeah. our. Yeah. It is. Well, personal. I think to suggest to anyone who has sort of made it their life's work to work with children that perhaps they are doing harm in some way, of course, that is, you know, there's going to be an emotional response. I, but I don't, I don't know. I, I think relationship is so important here too. If we're talking to someone, like I think about yes. um, when I'm teaching a class or doing a workshop and I say something like this, it's, I feel sort of bad about it. But if I, like when I was child care center director and was having all these conversations always with teachers and we could talk about something that I, you know, maybe wanted them to think more about or change, I didn't feel as bad because we had that relationship and I knew that we could continue the relationship. Um, But, but when you're just strangers on social media or someone sitting in a workshop somewhere, it's harder to hear those kinds of things without feeling like, oh, she's shaming me. Yes. Yes. And like, we keep coming back to that polarization and, and also like some people feel that childcare teachers are oppressed themselves and Mm -hmm. we have so few resources. We are 90, whatever percent women, we are underpaid. Um, Often the women that come to work in childcare are, are dealing with poverty themselves. Right. So how dare we, how dare we you know, criticize mm-hmm. these women who are doing this important work. Um, yeah. And I feel that too. I understand that the, the projection that to say boldly no to some practices mm-hmm. is seen as shaming or seen as polarization or seen as trying to put yourself in a and a, in a position of superiority mm-hmm. you know, that I can see how that projection comes into play. And, um, and of course we don't want to do that, but yet we have to say, we have to say what children deserve. If we're going to be part of the future that, that shifts yeah. you of children and the way that children are treated in our society mm-hmm. and advocate for all the women who are doing this work and hopefully more men that we yeah. bring work. Yeah. And, and, and shift away from the binary. <laughs> we're talking about that too. Tiffany, what did you want to say? Um, I was hoping that we could reframe this conversation about malpractice and take a page from, uh, Janet Lansbury and think about how we set limits with adults. Cause that's what we're doing. And you would not hesitate to say a bold, strong, no, this is the line. I won't let you hit your friend with that shovel. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to adults, it's like, well, I don't know. Man. Yeah. Like, there are times when you have to set a bold, strong line and they might not like it. Mm-hmm. And grownups have tantrums too. Yeah. And I think acknowledging that, especially online, when it's kind of hard to like pro tip, just leave Facebook. It's been lovely. <laughs> <laughs> but having those moments of no, the screens do not come out at school. The screen needs to go away. Mm-hmm. I don't hesitate because it's a strong mm-hmm. limit. There are other times I don't know what you're doing with that shovel. Oh, you're trying to figure out a way to get the snow off of the top of our tarp. Interesting. I'll support and surround and keep other people safe and see where this goes. And maybe I'll have to set a stronger limit. Maybe I'll have to take the shovel. <laughs> I don't know. But I think as adults, we fail to set limits with other people and boundaries with other people. So it turns into this, like, are you saying I'm a terrible teacher? Yeah. No, there are times when there are strong limits and there are times where we're going to have to like, oh, let's stand by close enough. We'll be in arm's reach. Mm-hmm. This will be a conversation. And maybe the teacher will convince you that what they're doing is okay. And you will let it play out and maybe they won't. <laughs> but I think that that, like, how do you set limits with other teachers is a very, and same with parents. Yeah. I love that. I love that because also we, we are in the caring profession, right. And, and caregivers are not always 
seen as people who have strong limits and boundaries. And so if we think of ourselves as these advocates, these warriors, these defenders, you know, there is going, we are going to come up against boundaries and how do we, how, do, how are we better at, at giving those boundaries and, and not being perceived as uncaring care has boundaries, good care. It has a lot of boundaries, right? Um, yeah, that's it. And then, and then the other thing is shifting, sh helping, helping educators shift to that thinking mode. Like we're doing right now, like I'm thinking about some of my practices and. <laughs> and it says that to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> the way I deliver my, because I'm an impassioned, oh, what are you, you yeah. know, that, that can cause polarization or that can cause teachers not to be thinkers. Oh God, Carol walked in the room again. Mm -hmm. You know, now she's going to judge me again. You know, it's like, but like Heather said, do I have a relationship with these people that we can all say, let's be thinkers together. Let's, mm -hmm. let's really meet in this place where we want to do what's best for children, you know, where I'm open to that feedback as, as in regards to the way I give feedback on the way I advocate mm -hmm. um, as well. So it is, it is such an important place for dialogue. And I do think the shaming comes up when you don't have that dialogue and you can't build that relationship. Yeah. Uh, here's a, a point that I personally struggle with quite a bit. The ability, like we, we give children experiences and space to make mistakes. Where is that space for teachers? Mm -hmm. And the malpractice, discussion comes into this a lot like yeah. at what point do they have to try I let every teacher that comes in to my classroom who's a fresh teacher and wants to teach maybe they've never been in this but I say sure set up a craft every day they don't have to come to the table and after about mm -hmm. two weeks the teachers don't do it anymore because they're like this is a waste of all of our time Why are we doing <laughs> you have to learn that for yourself I can't force it on you or you will mm -hmm. always try to get me to try it so just do it, have your moment and learn from it. Mm -hmm. And with this bigger malpractice conversation, how do we give our teachers that same lived experience and that same space to make mistakes without it being at the cost of the children? Mm -hmm. That's yes. a hard question. Yeah. It's a hard question. And that's where my ego comes in too. Like, this is my program. I have to be able to defend everything yeah. that happens in the school. And if I walk into this classroom with a parent and you guys have the iPad and kids are watching, you know, the wiggles or something, I'm, I'm going to be like, okay, it's not bad. You can do that at home, but we don't do that at our school. And I, and I, my own, my own ego comes into it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So how do we let teachers make mistakes? Go, Liz, go. I'm just thinking about how paradoxical it is, right? How, I mean, Heather and Tiffany, I've heard the two of you discuss how important it would be to have an internship program for teachers rather than, or in addition to the theory classes, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm just trying to think of how, just like Carol said, right? How we, how we can let teachers make mistakes. Because I mean, I, I think at the core of it, as long as they have that strong director, that strong co-teacher, those strong additional people with them and with the children, there is room for mistakes. There's room mm -hmm. for a degree of not doing it perfectly because no one's going to do it perfectly. Right. right? I'm not going to do it perfectly, no. certainly. Um, Carol but probably I, does. I think there is, well, <laughs> can't all be Carol. Uh, <laughs> hey guys. All right. Sorry, Liz, go ahead. But I mean, but there, but there is room for mistakes as long as we're set up to course correct like tiffany was saying right have the, set those boundaries for okay these this is how you can do your crafts you you can do them they're optional you're in charge of them <laughs> um yeah and i mean letting the teachers find out for themselves without putting the children in harm's way so to speak. i've seen i've learned a lot from from watching the way people do crafts with kids too and see and been able to say like oh man you're such a good artist and you have you brought out the ruler and you brought out the the you know these tools and you know can we talk more about what this craft would look like from a three-year-old perspective mm. oh they love the tools they love the sewing machine they love learning how to knit you know like there is a craft element that sometimes gets off track in our mm -hmm. field you'd see adults putting the googly eyes in the right places <laughs> but craft can be something 
that can the, the the merging of art and craft and the interweaving of that can be something where we see that it's not always black and white, mm-hmm. you know, open-ended art. Yeah. Is, yeah. yeah. I know you think that you'll never be able to ride that um, giving teachers experience to fail and being a director who has pride in your program. I don't think you can be that person at the same time. Mm. I agree. And I think that there's this, this cultural piece, like if you have a group of children and a group of educators together, and then in a school like mine, where we have many, many classrooms and there's just this cultural piece where I want to create a culture that is somewhat cohesive and somewhat has a signature pedagogy, but yet I want people to be themselves Mm -hmm. and I want people to be thinkers and interpreters and, and initiators. I, you know, so it's like, it's, um, it's not about dogma. Um, and that's where sometimes it, the, the do's and the don'ts right. are seen as dogmatic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a long one. <laughs> it's not longer than usual, but I feel like there's no smooth ending place. So maybe I just need to interrupt and, uh, cause I feel like we could go forever. Um, but I want to, so I do want to ask one more, one, one more thing. So I recorded yesterday with Samuel Broden and that episode will be when this one comes out last week's episode and wait. what I said, I can't wait. Oh yeah. It's good. Um, overall the topic is weapon play, but, but in that conversation, we started talking about the return on investment narrative in early childhood and how annoyed I get by that <laughs> because it's, um, you know, children are only valued for what we can get out of them in the future capitalist society. Um, but so we, what we started talking about was like, okay, so what's the return on on investment for sitting with your discomfort about weapon play and thinking about it? Um, so, so what, let's make a pitch. What's the return on investment for a teacher, uh, someone working with young children to, to think about being a bold advocate for appropriate practices or um, thinking about potential harm or, or any, any piece that we've talked about, do you have a pitch for a return on investment? I can pause while we all think. <laughs> I'm thinking about, um, because again, I've been in the field in so, so long and I've been in the role of supervisor director for quite a, quite a number of years now. I'm thinking about all the people I've interviewed who have said to me, I just came from this other program where I just knew what they were doing wasn't okay. Or I just knew that something in me didn't feel right. I didn't feel like I could be the educator I wanted to be, you know? Um, I just heard that story so many times and I think that's great. I think it shows that, that we have an instinct and we have always have a desire to grow with children. Um, Children give us so much to think about. They challenge us to be our best. So I just, I think, how can, how can, when you're in that spot, when you're in that spot of questioning the practice, you know, I'm sure you're going to be in the same spot we are right now. Like, how do you advocate for the kids? Mm -hmm. How do you sit with that discomfort, but find a way to take one step that Mm -hmm. says, hmm, can we try it a new way? Or can we look into this? Is there another path? Um, cause I think with, if everyone, we have power as, as the, the, the frontline yeah. <laughs> um, educators <laughs> who are with those children every day, we mm-hmm. are the ones that know these kids. Um, yeah. I don't think I answered your question, but yeah, still, it was good thoughts. So what there's a little bit of return on? investment for yourself professionally, return yes. on investment to, to spend that time and to become a, a better, a different, whatever teacher that one conversation might or that one shift might change the whole team or might change that parent's perspective of their own child I mean when you have that little impulse like oh something's not right here I want to figure out a better way I want to do it differently like just to just to follow that Mm -hmm. see where it takes you okay let's stare at Tiffany and Liz now uh I'd like to see some statistics about programs with teachers that advocate for developmentally. You can say it. You can say it. I know. I know. I laid down an embargo, Uh, but you can say it. (laughs) 
Um, I, I really wonder what their staff turnover rates are like. Because mm. to me, that's like a, that might not sound like a big return on investment to have staff that stay with you longer, but financially, Definitely and like, is. it like, uh, it ticks all the boxes that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, eventually this is a big return on investment. Um, just time spent hunting and interviewing and orienting mm -hmm. new teachers is then spent doing other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not that it's not valuable time, but if you have to do it every <laughs> six to nine months, then what are we doing here? Yeah. I wonder if, so, sorry, I'm trying to figure out. So we're investing time, right? We're investing yeah. resources, we're investing energy. And I'm thinking about the different directions, right? We're investing it in the teachers, we're investing it in programs, we're investing, investing it in the children, right? And I mean, I think that's the some of the beauty of being an advocate in early childhood, because you know that, you know, for every one person you get to really connect with and kind of help guide on their reflective path in early childhood towards what is appropriate for their children you're impacting I don't know 200 children over the course of the next mm, few years yeah more if that teacher then talks to other people I mean right. I think it's just such a wide reach um that that's that that just um and if I think that's where I'm stuck on it's it's impossible to measure, right? Because mm -hmm. you have a good conversation with one person and they implement something in their classroom and their colleagues see it and go, oh, you can do it that way. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they've all just been kind of hanging back waiting for someone else to be the first one to try doing it differently. And then they're all in there. Yeah. Right. So, cool. all right. you know, raindrop in the puddle, right? Or in yes. the <laughs> Either way. <laughs> all right. Well, that was fun. Thank you for um, playing along. <laughs> with that last question and thanks for this great conversation um i this is such a great group to record with and i'm not just saying that because you're on my screen right now <laughs> um between between our group chat and these recordings um uh I'm going into the new year feeling pretty good about things. So thank you. Um, okay, so let's be done with this episode. Um, <laughs> thanks for listening. No more developmentally appropriate practice. Got no it, more. No Don't more. have to worry about it ever again. Yeah, no, we've covered it. We fixed it. Um, <laughs> thanks everybody for listening. Hope you'll come back again next week for another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.